Hey, everybody. That's right. It's me, your host of Room 9, Sean Cuddy. And this is the introduction to episode 30. I sit down with a good friend, Ted. I don't know, for those who've been kind of listening from the beginning, I sat down and he kind of talked for a few minutes back in the earlier episodes with another guy named Jason, and they were in the process of starting their own recovery podcast, which as of date, I think that fell through and is not happening anymore, but it was awesome to catch up with Ted and actually just have him for a one-on-one for about an hour. It was pretty awesome. Before I let you listen to that, Room9Podcast.com is waiting for you to fill out a contact form so you can stay up to date with all the happenings here at Yield Room 9. This weather sucks in Buffalo. It feels like winter and it's June 3rd. It's been kind of annoying, so I don't know if anybody else is frustrated with that. I'm just cranky in general today. Looking forward to the days when I have my own studio to record in, peace and quiet. This upcoming episode... It was just absolutely frustrating from somebody knocking on the door, somebody upstairs blasting the TV, just constant noise going on. So if you have a room, a quiet, vacant room somewhere where I can do my podcasting, let me know. That'd be awesome because <laughs> it is quite frustrating. So I'm very much looking forward to the growth of Room 9 and a one-day studio just for podcasting and me doing work that is completely quiet and peaceful one day a guy can dream anyway the other good news room nine is officially room nine i went down to the county clerk's office and filed it as an official business so i am the sole proprietor of room nine which is pretty awesome so it's one step closer to being an official business i'm very pumped about that it's amazing what spending 35 dollars can do for you So I'm excited about that. If you would like to help support Room 9 and its message, you can go to room9.com backslash support, and you can sign up for Patreon that way, or you can do a one-time donation. Any bit helps, and it keeps this thing alive, and it keeps this thing going, and it gets this message out for anybody who is struggling with substance use or knows somebody who is struggling with substance use. Um, So yeah, Ted, episode 30 is coming right up now. We hit on a lot of cool topics, whether it's creativity and sobriety, whether it's family education for the loved ones you have that are struggling with substance use. He shares a little bit about his story and how he was about to be a counselor in his last relapse. So it is pretty awesome to hear him talk and share what he has been through. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Room 9, episode 30. I love you guys. Bye-bye. Wait a minute. You're Sean Cuddy. That's right. How are you going to know? You're Sean Cuddy. Stop asking fucking questions. That's right. Yeah. You better believe it. Oh, you better believe it. That's right.
Come on. You're Sean Cuddy. That's right. God bless him. Mm-hmm. That's right. So here I am. That's right. Here you are, back at Room 9 Studio. Definitely um, some upgrades in equipment. I'm trying to think when we did one. Jesus, I didn't have any of my stuff that I have now. I mean, your desk was in a different spot. Yeah, that was over there. <laughs> That's all yeah, I, got. I, got I wasn't it. paying attention that close. But, you know, I didn't have the soundboard. I didn't have. <clears throat> I had two mic stands and two mics, and that was it. And then this little interface and a crappy laptop. Well, you know, so you gotta start have, somewhere. So I've upgraded. Looks good. No, just be glad you're doing it sober. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. No, depending on how many uh, coffees and energy drinks I've had, yeah, sober all, might be questionable. All, but... <laughs> that's all relative at this point. But yeah, so a lot has changed since you have last been here, Ted. I'm glad to be back. That is for sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy a to have has, you here. A lot has changed for me, too. Yeah, we're going to have to have a discussion about that before we hit record. Yeah, we were talking about, because uh, you were taking those recovery coach classes with me. Right, out in Lockport, and the one, <laughs> the one lady who was running it said something about me using my laptop to take notes, and was really questioning it. And I remember right. I threw the laptop around finally and showed her, and I said she ended up apologizing to me. She was she was a good good lady. Just uh, no, she was she was super awesome. Yeah, they great. were good. Both she of was them. Great. Keith was awesome, and Lori was awesome. Yeah, no, they but, did great. But there were some things there that, that she discussed with a family member of hers that were. It was an interesting strategy that, uh, you know, I, as much as I've, you know, I've worked in the field and also, you know, I had my own experience with recovery. There's a lot out there now that I, I don't know much about. And the whole psychedelic thing was something new for me and then the different pathways to recovery. Like I agree with it, but some of them, you know, you're kind of like, all right, well, we're doing harm reduction here, but like, Hmm. Like, yeah. So let's talk about that because we might actually have a difference of opinion when it comes to, um, to that topic. It depends. So I guess let's start with your back. You you have your case set, correct? I, I did in Iowa. Okay, so mm-hmm. it was you know your license in Iowa then. Mm-hmm. But well, so it was, whatever it was you case, been through. Case training was what it was. Okay, I ended up relapsing and getting fired before I was able to complete it to be officially certified. But either yeah. way, you have a lot of that experience and. Yeah, I, I spent a year a year or more as a counselor there, and you know had probably eight to ten clients at a time and ran two groups a week or no, I should say two, two groups a day. And, um, and it was a lot of counseling. It, it really got my feet wet in the counseling field. And, you know, it's a great experience, but I did see a lot come across, you know, different cases come across my desk and I, you know, certainly formed some opinions at that point. Although I wasn't necessarily in recovery myself. I was, I was sober most of the time, but I wasn't really in recovery. I was, oh, I was still somewhat dependent on, I was taking Neurontin. It was like the last medication I like they didn't quite take me off of when I was done with my rehab experience. What is Neurotin? Gabapentin. Okay, okay. Yeah. And that was something I didn't really realize I'd get addicted to, but I did. And so I was on and off abusing that throughout my time as a counselor, but it didn't, it doesn't really affect your cognition as much, but it, you know, the problem is you can keep, you know, the more you take, and I took a ton of it, it starts to just affect your use in general, like your just health. Your mood. Yeah. And... yeah. I mean, especially, you know, when you, when you adjust amounts, like, cause I was, you know, mostly self-medicating again, when you adjust the amount, if you go 
significantly down, like let's say you run out of the med, then you're it's a hellish experience. Like withdrawing from gabapentin is is up there. I would say with the pain level, like in terms of emotional pain and physical pain, it was pretty pretty close to benzos. For really? Me. Well, yeah. well, I was also taking a lot a lot of gabapentin, but I wasn't really ready. I don't think I was ready to be a counselor at that point. I wasn't ready to be in the field. I was only sober like three months before they hired me. Really? Okay. So and I ended up working at the rehab I went to. Really? That's interesting. Three right. months after you left. Yeah. And almost, you know, I am, I did sort of an informal interview as an inpatient, like in my last week there with the vice president of the company. There was a lot of pressure there to like do the thing. My I'm, fa- I'm uh, dumbfounded that uh, an institution like that <clears throat> wouldn't allow that. It's a private, it was a private company. Not a lot of like ethical oversight. A well, in, a well intending was owned by a couple that was a well intending couple who wanted to help addicts and alcoholics recover and they had had some personal experiences in their family and they started this company you know they were software engineers and millionaires at that they started it with good intentions like Mm -hmm. well let's create a rehab that's a little different that you know might work for other people so it wasn't it wasn't 12 step it wasn't um disease based it was all choice based um, a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy, that sort of thing. Yeah, so I was there for eight weeks, and then they had some significant interest in hiring me as a counselor. And um, about three months after that, they they were ready for me, and I pretended to be ready. But mm-hmm. uh, and I think I did a good job there. You know, by and large, I I definitely struggled as time went on. I realized I didn't really change anything. I just I literally had gotten sober. That was it. I was abstinent, and um, to me that was recovery because I didn't know any different. I never tried 12-step. I was pretty anti-12-step because I didn't really want to think I had a disease. That mm. that terrified me. Like, I thought, I don't know, I, I was hoping that what they were telling me was true, that as long as I, like, made better choices, you know, all this stuff would go away. And um, not so much. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't quite like that. As we all find out at one point or another, yeah, if you just tried to stop using drugs and don't work on anything else, I... Yeah, I don't see that successful very often anyway. And, the, and if it is successful, that person is still a miserable human being. Yeah, and I and I deep down was still miserable. Like, yeah, I didn't I didn't know why I was so unhappy. You know, life turned around really quickly for for my family when I got the job there. We got you know we were renting this brand new house. It was beautiful. Um, we were living in this small little idyllic town, and I had a job I really liked. I loved my coworkers, although they had been my counselors, so there was some weird dual relationships there. Mm. Like they knew my story pretty intensely and my boss was my primary counselor. So like it was the whole thing. So when I started to struggle, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know who to turn to. You know, I didn't have a real open relationship with my wife about my using, using mm-hmm. patterns. Like she kind of, it was always her discovery. I didn't come to her generally with like, I'm struggling type thing because I didn't want anybody to think I was struggling. I wanted to, it was like, I wanted to be cured and I wanted everybody to think I was cured, so everybody would get off my back, you know, and I could kind of do what I wanted to do. Yeah. And that mostly included, like, I want to regulate my own, like, self-medicating schedule. Because I still really hadn't figured out what it meant to be in recovery. I didn't have any clue. So when I fell apart and got ended up going back to the same things I'd done before, while well, I wasn't surprised, I feel like everybody else was, like, shocked. <laughs> but I, and, and as any good addict or alcoholic, I denied it, denied it, denied it, denied it. In fact, I don't think I've ever even told my wife the truth. Like, we've never sat down and had that conversation. Like, I blamed it on everything else. And I think part of her believed it. Part of her was like, yeah, right. 
especially <laughs> especially when she found this pile, pile of clonopin in my car and she's like what's this all about and i'm like that's for emergencies you know you come up with the, oh the bullshit that you come up with you know and it's mostly it's ridiculous most of it is yeah <laughs> i mean it's like but you're like well maybe there's like a one in a million chance they'll buy it and that's like you're gonna go with that <laughs> i'm gonna go with that one in a that's, million that's better than the truth oh my god any at least for me anyway it was showing any kind of like weakness it was a combination of being so prideful oh and yeah, absolutely not wanting to show any kind of weakness is really what it was even though everybody around you could see how weak you really are <laughs> yeah when you're you know when you're showing up to work as a counselor and you're loaded like that's pretty weak <laughs> mm-hmm. and then when people you know when i got accused a few times i would be like what me and i figured out a way to rig my rig the system with like the saliva tests and things like i figured out how to do everything that you could do to like get around the positive tests and things mm-hmm. and i pretty much did whatever i could to keep my own like personal whatever was left of any sort of like self worth i had left was like that was what i was going to safeguard and for some reason continuing to deny and lie and th- that was like the ass backwards way of preserving whatever was left of my own integrity <laughs> which sounds totally backwards to most people but like that's the frame of mind you're in when you're in the disease state everything that makes sense in your brain obviously to, to normal healthy sober people this looks no, like this looks complete stupid. and i see it now and i've had some you know friends that are struggling right now and and i see them doing and saying the same things i did and and from from when you you know i'm long enough removed from it now that i have an instant where i forget like i get frustrated and i I just recently had a friend who ended up back in the hospital and my first reaction was like somewhat probably what you know my family experienced which is like what the like why why are you doing this thing like but then you know i had to step back and be like you know this is what it is it's it's a disease and certainly there were some poor choices made involved with that but like who am i to to be like judgmental of him having to go through the process again some people that's just what it is um, yeah, we had a we had a guy in the Oxford house we had to kick out recently, and he, <laughs> it was just so funny. First, he hands us. We were like, "All right, dude, you got to talk." There's some dude pounding on the door here, saying, "You owed him money. You just ripped him off." Yeah, that's a bad sign. Yeah, you know, so immediately it's like, "All right, what's going on? Just take a talk, dude." You're, the night before, he was sitting out on the couch with me. I was watching basketball while I was eating dinner. And he's asking me the same questions over and over again. Like, he completely is just absent mind. I'm like, all right, what the fuck's going on? He's d- nodding out. Yeah. So the next day, we're like, all right, dude, you're going to have to take this tox. He's like, no, look it. I just got back from outpatient. I took one. Here, here's a sheet. <laughs> so he's got this sheet that, and it shows, um, it has, like, stuff crossed off and <laughs> labeled was a supervised no, but he crossed it out and highlighted yes with the highlighter. Like, he's yeah. like, no, the counselor did that. And right. I'm like, <laughs> but I'm like I mean, it was just bad. And I just finally, I'm like, dude, come on. We know how it is. We've all done that same yeah, thing. Yeah, I've done it. Like, I know. Like, he pits dirty for three things. Benzos, coke, yeah. and dope and i'm like he's like what i'm like brian come on bro (laughs) it's all right dude but i get it but i remember having that what reaction (laughs) like because you know there's party that's like maybe i'll fool everyone again maybe no everybody will believe me and it's but it's not out of a state of like trying to like you're not trying to be a shit person it's no you just don't just trying to survive yeah Yeah, i actually wrote this quote down this morning which is funny it came up it says you can't change somebody who does not see an issue with their actions you can only change how you react to them it's true and it's yeah when people are doing things like they don't know they don't even realize it 
Yeah. It's obvious it is to me that you're doing something stupid and ridiculous. That person himself or herself does not realize it. Right. And even if there is some realization that the, for me, the, the overriding motivation of trying to avoid withdrawal or mm-hmm. trying to avoid having these, to, to do these things like actually get better, which terrified me. I mean, really, I don't think people understand the level of fear involved with staying in, in the, you know, active addiction. It's, it's literally for me, it was the fear of going through withdrawal for benzos, especially was so much more real and pertinent to me than it was if everyone in my life had just said, screw you. And we're like mm-hmm. literally walking away. Like I'd be like, fine, but get me some pills while you're out. Like, <laughs> like, Before you leave, right, can I just borrow just, $10? Right, I need to do, because until you can feel that level of even feeling human again it's like i can't even deal with i'm not going to be able to deal with anything that you're talking about until i can at least think straight like that was my thing it's like until i can even feel like i'm not gonna like die any second Mm -hmm. like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna entertain your your and that sounds horrible but it's like i'm not gonna even deal with things that you're telling me or the realities that are coming with skies falling like i don't care like yeah i mean just that's the first major step is just getting through that first week or 30 days depending on what you're coming off of of withdrawal itself yeah and then you don't like it's like before that process happens and you're, you actually clear up, it's like, you truly don't know what you don't know. Like you mm-hmm. don't know where you're going to, like how you're going to feel once you go through that process. And what was so stunning for me about this process this time, I'll have 14 months in a few days is like that you just, you realize like even your first few days of getting clean, like in the hospital for me, once, even when the drugs are out of your system, your perception is so different than it's how it's going to be mm-hmm. in two weeks, in three months in six months in a year that's the stunning part for me is that like i'm glad i didn't listen to that little inner voice even like six months ago (laughs) it's i see i find it pop up like all the time just randomly and it's very quiet now it's very subtle it's something i'm very aware of at this point and you know i can really just recognize it before anything sinks in but the other day i was driving to um drop off this application for this job and it was I took the 33, went down, whatever, basically for people who are listening and don't know Buffalo. I went through downtown to get over to Main Street. And the Fruit Belt is where I bought my dope almost all the time. But I was, um, I was just, it was just that voice came in my head. I had, what, $80 in cash in my pocket? Hey, you could go get dope right now. And I just, I started laughing because, I, you know, I've recognized it now and I've become very hyper aware of that voice. But I was just like, it's crazy. I'm, I'm I think you're like a week before me as far as uh clean time and yeah i'm coming up on 14 months as well and still 14 months of not doing any drugs and that voice was just subtle just from majority of people it's when you stop becoming aware of that voice is that all of a sudden you wake up in a freaking you know three-day binge and you're back at square one again right and i don't know that i hear the voice that's telling me to, to use anymore i i hear <clears throat> what i hear from my st- inner like the self-talk is just about other decisions in life mm-hmm. like what am i going to do as far as this job goes what am i going to do as far as like what i'm going to do today like how i'm going to spend my money how i'm going to allocate my energy and all that stuff for me that's where the 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 learning is still happening like very rarely do i feel like oh yeah i'd like to go you know get some clonopin or something i mean occasionally it's like it would be nice to have this because i feel like crap right now Mm -hmm. and i don't want to deal with this emotion but by and large for me like the thought the changing thoughts have to do with like how to like live life now and how to be like a normal human you know <laughs> and i'm realizing you know the more time i spend around people who are healthy normal people and you know i'm 
it's funny how you start realizing how your thoughts are so different than theirs. But, oh my um, gosh, yes. But like, you know, I think for you know, people in early sobriety, my the one thing I, I really want to emphasize is like, don't necessarily trust everything you think, feel, and are right now because it's going to change. If you stay sober and you work, you work on recovery, like it's going to change. The way you view things in six months from now, it's going to be different than how you view them. Yeah, and I think I think it's just in the state of hyperspeed for addicts, but I think you can say that for any human being, really. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, think I think in recovery though, it is. It is. Yeah. There's. A, it's like a hyperspeed. Like it happens like yeah. quick and fast and hard, and because you are, you're coming from the state of mind that is just totally left field, and now you're totally in right field. And yeah. Yeah. Shit is happening like crazy. Yeah, I think I I feel like recovery is akin like the first year for me is akin to what it would be like to move to a foreign country where you don't know the language. <laughs> that's like that's a great analogy. Like you don't know anybody, you know, and you don't know the culture. I mean, you might have some idea of the culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, but like for me, I was I was you know in a fuzzy state for thirteen, fourteen years. So coming back into society is like being in a different country. It's like, yeah, that's crazy. Well, and then literally, I'm in a different place than I used to be too. So, but yeah, I, I would imagine like anybody who's ever traveled travel abroad and try to live in a different location it's like you there are certain things you become so immersed with right away but there's other things that are just a disconnect for a while mm-hmm. and um i think culture is one of those big things also like i don't just finding your place i think in recovery finding finding your place in the world is which i think is a huge part of staying clean is being able to find that place whatever it is yeah and so many people, will, you know, have these grandiose ideas of what they want to be and what they would love to do the rest of their lives. But I always use my good buddy Matt, for example, is he's he's become an electrician. He got a internship now being, a, you know, an apprentice electrician, and he's just he's loving it. And it's just something simple. And he's like, I've never felt this way about a job and just finding your, your niche in the world and what it is you want to be doing. Yeah, career. I mean, because, I mean, I don't know, for me, holding a job finding a job, being employed, being a good, a good employee. Mm-hmm. Um, those are some of the biggest struggles when I was using. So, so now I don't think you're alone in that. Right. Yeah. So when you come out and you're like, okay, I have to do the thing. <laughs> I have to be like a normal worker bee. It's like, what the heck am I good at? Like, even if you've gone to college, like I, like I have, even if you have skill sets, it's like, I don't know for me, my self-esteem was so tarnished mm-hmm. and like my ability to do anything was like okay you know i don't know if i can even go to the grocery store and like pick out like i don't know if i can meal plan like that sounds <laughs> that sounds like a big deal like that's a lot of commitment for me the job finding the finding the career in the job thing like i mean i never thought i'd go back into counseling and that's what i'm doing mm-hmm. um i didn't want to i didn't want to be associated with it i had a lot of negative feelings about it but that was kind of a, something that happened to me in general while in addiction was anything that i felt rejected from I was like, well, screw that. I have no part of that moving forward. And, and the counseling field was one of those things. So I'm glad to be doing it again. Yeah. So what are you doing now? Well, I, I recently got hired by a local agency to be a um, counselor associate, which I'll be working at their, it's like a, I don't know if you want to call it a halfway house. It's here in Buffalo. It's for, it's in general for men who don't have anywhere else to go, but, okay. are, but, are, at, but are in the next stage after generally um, a longer term, a longer term yeah. treatment. So it's a place where they have out, but they have an outpatient counselor, but they also have an in-house counselor. So I'll, I'll be doing that. I'm going to try to bring recovery coaching there too. That's something they're interested in doing. Okay. And they're going to be changing their, the sort of the paradigm of their program. They're going to be making it a situation where when guys come in the door, they're basically to, in order to stay there, they have to get a job. So that's a huge shift from what they've been doing before. It's going to be either go to school or get a job and we're going to help you do these things. 
So it's the idea that's like people, I don't know, who end up in these agencies and these systems. I don't know. The big problem I think that they found is that people have a hard time getting out. Like they don't know how to get out. Like how mm-hmm. do I, how do I ever escape this without having like gainful employment? How do I, you know, and, and then it's like, what exactly are you living for? There's only so much to do in a day that has to do with like going to meetings, going to outpatient. It's like what, you know, a lot of these places I've had experience with friends there and like people literally like nap all day. Oh my gosh. It's all over the place. Or they eat all day. It's like nothing's really happening in their lives. So it's like, what really do they have? What what are they developing to actually stay sober for? A lot of them, the boredom is a huge thing. That's huge. And um, I've seen that take a lot of people down, just complacency yep. and laying around in bed all day. And yeah, when you're not living a normal life, when you're not, and I'm normal by normal, I mean going to a job, by you know, having friends at work, you know, having a life that's like you can get up for in the morning, even if they don't like love your job, just the idea that you're contributing. Or you can just do what I did, and I'm just creating my own job. I mean, <laughs> and that's awesome, but most people making don't, this most, shit up. <laughs> but most people don't have that drive. Like you, you have a really strong like internal motivation to do this. Like most people, be like, yeah, I'd love to do a podcast, and that's like the practicality of actually doing it. Oh, but I was telling that to somebody the other day. I think it was actually Garrett. Yeah. Well, I just did a podcast with him and his girlfriend, and. I was saying so many people think it's just hit record and talking to some microphone. It's like, yeah, no, it's a little more than that. (laughs) And not to mention like right now I'm, I went down with somebody at Buff State yesterday and they're helping me develop a business plan. And then I got to go do this presentation in front of access VR to try to get money from them. And either way, it's like slowly becoming an actual business where I'll be like offering recovery coaching and doing presentations and stuff. But but for people who are a little bit maybe less driven. It is. Yeah. Somebody did. Uh, my buddy Matt messaged me today. He was like, dude, I am like jealous of the drive you've had. And I was like, I don't know what it was. Just when I was laying in jail, it just happened. Yeah. I was like, I am not. I can't go back to a normal job. I need to do something I love to do and that I don't have to worry about even retiring from because I love doing it so much. It's not even a job anymore. And not to say there's not things I don't like about doing this, like networking and Facebook stuff, and I hate it. Yeah. But there's a lot of things I don't <laughs> like about this. There's a lot of peopling involved with this. Yes, there is. <laughs> there is. There definitely is. But, I, I mean, I'm loving every second of it. But I also have had the deal with that, like, find that balance in myself because there's times where... It's not, I'm not doing enough no matter how much I do or it's not good enough. And I have to really just stay on top of that self-talk of yeah, our, take a break. It's okay. Our like, level of perfectionism in, a, in something like this can mm-hmm. drive you nuts. It can. Yeah. It's, you really need to learn and how to use it because it's a great tool to always help you improve and to learn more. But when you let it take over, you just, it, it used to make me give up on everything and right. just like, I'm not good enough. Why bother? Yep. Yeah, I've been there too. Like I've I've just recently started to because I did a lot of artwork growing up, and I've done a lot of paintings, drawings. I've sold quite a bit. Um, you play music too, right? I do. Okay. Yep. So in terms of being artistic in sobriety, it's like that perfectionism piece can like really, <laughs> can really get you. It can, yeah. But what I've realized is like it's it's so much more fun doing it sober. Like I I've looked back at a lot of the artwork I did, you know, over the past 10 years. And while some of it I'm proud of most of it, I look back and I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it, it, some of it, like people argue, well, you, you can be more creative when you're, you know, having these. That was funny. Yeah. I don't know. Man. I went like, through that. I went through that. A lot of thinking of that at the village, because obviously I was playing music all the time. Yeah. Cause I could have my guitar there. And I wrote more songs, more beautiful songs that I've ever completed, yeah. written before. 
And I used to have that mindset, like, you have to be high. I have to, even just smoking uh, weed, like, oh, I gotta hit hit the bong a couple times so I can fucking play and write. And it's really, I've, I've found it to not be true whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've recently started to write some songs again, too, and I play guitar, piano, sing. I love composing, but I, I spent probably the majority of the past 12 years being, like, telling everybody around me, like, I've got writer's block. <laughs> I can't do this. Just because it's like, I would try to create something, and, like, when I mean, you're just, and you're half in the bag all the time, and you're mm-hmm. like, it's just, even if you have these, like, supposed, like, epiphany moments, I would record them. And I've gone back and listened Listen to, them. to them when you're it's not. Like, wow. <laughs> so I'm really enjoying. I'm really enjoying getting back into writing lyrics and, and writing songs. And I've got you know some friends of mine who are you know I'm trying to get together to do a to do a band. But like you know all these things are now possible, which is great. It's like but the creativity thing, like to me being sober, I, I'm much more creative sober. Mm-hmm. Like it's like I get where people come from with like hallucinogenics and dissociatives and like yeah you can unlock certain parts of your brain yeah that, like, absolutely can create connections that you know you may not be able to normally create but like I'm not really I don't need that you know I don't know like I no, I, I don't think anybody needs them right I mean I used to write some lyrics while you know trying some like dissociative stuff the robo tripping you know <laughs> Jesus Christ like that's one thing I can say I've never done. <laughs> Yeah, that's a whole thing like that's but like yeah i and I, you know i go back and read some of that stuff and it's profound but it's like man not worth it Ooh. like not <laughs> worth it at all was this worth ruining my life over right <laughs> oh my gosh it's just, oh my so, gosh the things you do are so bizarre no i'm you know and also just doing like i really like doing pencil drawings that are like realistic looking so people think they're photographs that's and that's awesome now yeah. that i've got to the point where i'm i can actually do detail again yeah, doing, like, detailed drawings. I just did one for my daughter, and uh, I, I was like, wow, this is actually easy to do sober. Like, I realized I hadn't done this, like, sober since hmm. college, probably. And I'm working on something else now for a friend, but it's it's been really enjoyable. So, like, yeah, I'm finding that all the things that I didn't think would be necessarily enjoyable sober, I'm, they're... They're awesome, yeah. Yeah, and photography. Like, I'm not great at it, but I love being a part of a group on Facebook that my friend Corey started called mm-hmm. Buffalo, etc., Oh, nice. Some fantastic photographers on there. And I'm going to go around with uh, a couple couple of the people who are in the group and uh, kind of learn learn what they do. Um, one of the, the gals on there is a, I mean, she's got to be a professional. I don't know her real well, but like, you go on there. What's I think, it called? Uh, Buffalo, etc. It's literally Buffalo, comma, ETC. Oh, okay. But some of the talent on there is just phenomenal. And uh, Corey, who's my good friend, he's become extremely extremely good at it in fact he's got a website where he sells his prints now so well give him a shout out what's the website cory hill is the is the guy and it's um cory james slash buffalo dash etc that's where you can order some of cory's work i'm trying to find yeah since we're giving shout outs to photographers i don't know when's the last time you've been on my website um but um i don't know this this guy that i worked with at a restaurant he is a he does a lot of just photography for fun around Buffalo, but he's done like all the grain elevators. Oh, okay. And he just he's got so many awesome photos. You know, like, I don't think I've ever been on your site on no? a desktop. Yeah. Like I don't so, have a desktop I have a whole... right now. So like I think I've seen the I briefly, briefly did the saw the, you know, the smartphone version, whatever you call it. Yeah, so you go photos photos by Daniel Drought, D R A U D T. And I, I gave a whole little shout out to him because he said, yeah, use any of my pictures you want. Oh, those and, are great. And so I've just 
I had I have them all over on my site, man. Except I think that's the only page I don't is the podcast page. But yeah, I think I saw that. And I was wondering if you took them. I was like, yeah, Dude. no, I, I'm, like, I have no idea how to take pictures. So the other person on 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 Buffalo, etc., that is just amazing is Brianna Brianna Robinson. Uh, she and I are gonna hang out soon, and she said she'd take me around and show me how she does it. Her stuff is just amazing. I mean, it's just okay. Yeah, here she she is. she is does a lot of, and I don't know like how she does it exactly, but she puts herself in these situations where she's around people and able to like photograph them apparently without them being like think it's super weird mm-hmm. like she's able to do those really great candid shots of people on the street you know and she meets them she engages with them so i'm really excited to go hang out with her yeah that's the thing like so many and when you just hear oh photography you think what is there to really being a good photographer and then you see some even you just start learning a little bit about it it's like oh my gosh how do people take like these just you have to have this cre- whole creative yeah. mindset and i like, think i'm going to take that picture like and have it look like this and yeah and i'll be more well better versed after i you know hang out with her but i think what i'm gathering that she does that i think there's gotta be a, must, a lot of engagement with the people that you meet on the street like hey like I, she gets to know them like she writes little bits about what these people say to her and things like that's that. cool and it's it's a, it's a great illustration of what it's like to walk around in buffalo she shows the people like that's you know sometimes mm-hmm. the kind of the weirdos that you meet out there sometimes the really like unique people sometimes just your common persons so i really yeah that's been a great a great thing to be a part of so my life is really full right now there's just there's just so much i want to do and there's so much out there to do and buffalo is just a great it's like a great place to recover honestly like is, i couldn't yeah. have imagined being somewhere else i n- never wanted to be here but now that i'm here and i'm experiencing it and uh, i'm actually like getting used to the city like it, it's great yeah, I do. I, I when I came back from living in Florida for five years, I really started falling in love with the city. It's got a lot going on. Yeah. It, you know, I, I lived here like ten years ago and did not feel the same way. But I also was I wasn't sober. Yeah. And, um, and the city is. I mean, the city of Buffalo itself has gotten phenomenally better. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. especially if you're talking ten years ago. Yeah. yeah. When we left ten years ago, things were not great around here. Nope. <laughs> um, no. It was, no. It was they were you struggling. know honestly pretty depressing. Of course, the economy was horrible. But coming back and like. Having the experience of being sober to truly sober and in recovery for the first time ever. Yeah, I love Buffalo. I really do. I, The people, like, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a big city. You got a wide variety of folks. But, Absolutely. like, the people that I've Which is I, not and, a bad thing. No, yeah. the people that I've met, though, from, from all the different walks of life are just, like, I always thought that City of Good Neighbors thing was just, like, a nice little PR campaign. But, like, there's, <laughs> like, no, for real, though. Like, there like, is good There people. are good people uh, here, like, legit good people. And I, I grew up on the West Coast where people are not nearly as friendly. No, not at all. Um, or down south, really. Unless you get into, like, the hick redneck areas. Where then it's a little too friendly. Where then it's, yeah. <laughs> and you're questioning the <laughs> motives there. No, but, like, you know, I remember growing up in Reno and spending a lot of time in San Francisco. It's like, you, there was, like, you walk around and you don't look at people in the eye. Like, if you look people in the eye, there's going to be some sort of confrontation that's going to happen. Yeah, it's so bizarre. Here in Buffalo, it's like, literally, people will say hi to you, and you're like, oh, like, I'm still pleasantly surprised by it. Yeah, my ex-wife, when her parents would come up here to visit, because she was born in Fort Lauderdale area, she always said that everybody says hi to you. Like, she said it like a snob, too. It's almost mid- It was a bad thing. Yeah, that's that's really annoying, isn't it? When people say hello to you. (laughs) They hate friendly people. What the fuck? It's almost Midwestern in, in the in the way the warmth of the people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's that East Coast edge, I guess you could say. There is, definitely, yeah. But the warmth is cool. And especially in the recovery community, man, it's great. I love it. It is. So you, um, are you, do, do you do 12 steps? Yeah. Yep, I'm part of the one of the fellowships. Okay. I, I do AA. Okay. So, and it's, you know, I found it to be, it's alive here. And there's young people. 
not to say age really matters, but like it was important for me to see that. No, you want to see people around your age. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was important for me to see that, that there were people who were came from not only like different walks of life, but also were younger and, and interested in, in recovering. I witnessed a number of speakers at meetings for my first six months that were younger people with Mm -hmm. sustained sobriety and they like loved their life. You know, I also gravitated towards the people like in my home group who were not not necessarily all young people, but good, long, sustained sobriety and loving life. Like that was the, the impact that, that changed me really was like, in my opinion, towards AA and, and NA is like, wow, like these people actually enjoy their life legit you know there are there are a lot of good people people out there i particularly i tried doing it and doing the sponsor thing and it became a little too much for me but there's so much good stuff to get taken from it there's so many awesome people in it yeah i mean for me the thing that has kept me going is is the shared experiences like mm-hmm. i you know i can sit there and talk about something that i'm currently going through and there's like four or five people nodding their heads and being like yep me yeah. too. and it's like okay well how are you going to deal with this how, how did you deal with this what's your perspective and, well that's huge to not feel alone in mm-hmm. your issues and, and that's I, one of the biggest benefits of talking about things, and especially groups like that, is you find people who are not in their heads. Yeah, I'm going through the same shit. Yeah, I mean, and don't get me wrong. I think the steps have been helpful. I think they've, you know, for me, changed a lot of things in my life. But it's been the fellowship. It's, you know, it's having friends. It's having people, you know, you can rely on who have that shared experience. It's like, it's like a common bond. And uh, I don't know what I would have found it outside of the fellowship. You know, I, could, I guess I could have found it in my Oxford house when I was there. I mean, but like, I don't know, like, how do you get out and meet other people that have shared experience? I mean, you do this. So this kind of is a, yeah, an this is, well, this is what, keep, if I didn't do this, <clears throat> I always say like one of the biggest things I've noticed and people are probably sick of me saying this, but one of the biggest things I noticed with relapses and everything was people, even with people with a lot of time, they just forgot. They forgot everything, their story, where they came from, how shitty it was, mm. and then they wake up in this this freaking two-week binge and like, how did I get back here? Right. And I realized that, I noticed that very quickly, and I came up with this quote, like, I know I got this as long as I know I don't got this. And I say that to myself all the time, at least once a day, because if I don't do something that's keeping my recovery and me reminded of where I came from, then I'm going to become this overconfident human being who's going to slip and end up right back at square one. Right. And so, I mean, this is the number one thing. This room nine is what keeps me every day. I have to network, at least get on and network and throw some posts.